You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 47. Today, we're sitting down with Arctic specialist, PhD researcher, and photographer Taylor Stone and award-winning filmmaker Ashley Payne to chat about using your photos and videos to create lasting impact, even global impact, on sensitive issues. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I hope you're having a great week so far, and thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I'm really excited to introduce you to our guests today, Taylor Stone and Ashley Payne. If you're in a place where you would like your photography to have an impact, then I think you will find the stories that Taylor and Ashley share today and their enthusiasm and passion for their work to be really inspiring and motivating. So before we dive into their interview, let me give you a little background on each of them. Taylor Stone is a professional landscape photographer and PhD researcher whose work merges visual art with fact-based knowledge about Earth's vulnerable environments and cultures. For the last four years, Taylor has specialized in pioneering academic research on the impacts of globalization and a changing climate on Greenland's rural communities. She has spent two summers in Greenland immersed in the local culture and landscape, working to lay the foundation for the project that she and Ashley will share with us today. Taylor's photography is represented in galleries in both New Orleans and Carmel, California. She is an educator with the Munch Workshops, which is the world's premier photography education organization, and is a contributor to the Arctic Arts Project, which is an organization dedicated to visually communicating the science of climate change. And you can view Taylor's work on her website at taylorstonephotography.com. Ashley Payne is an alumna from Pratt Institute and is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and photojournalist. From the formidable rainforests of Borneo to the countryside of Kashmir, Ashley lives with her subjects for extended periods and completely immerses herself in the lives of others. Her work often examines environmental change, natural disaster aftermath, corrupt government systems, and the emotions that accompany these events. In the last five years, she has worked with nonprofits across the globe, such as Archive Global in Bangladesh, Shangri-La Trek in Nepal, Sakala Adit Aris Kualan in Borneo, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, and with CNN hero nominee Made Janor Yasa of Plastic Exchange in Bali, Indonesia. In the past year alone, Ashley has won six film festivals, including Outstanding Performance, Best Director Award New York, Best Documentary Film at Los Angeles Film Awards, and Best Documentary at Las Vegas International. And you can learn more about Ashley's production company, Tracing Thought, at tracingthought.com. And so without further ado, please enjoy my inspiring and thought-provoking conversation with Taylor Stone and Ashley Payne. Mm-hmm. 
Taylor and Ashley, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and and share your stories and expertise with our listeners. Of course. Hi. Thanks so much, Brenda. Thank you. Yeah. So I've already given the listeners a brief bio on each of you in the introduction, but for folks who are not yet familiar with you or the work that you do... I was hoping that you could, you know, tell us a little bit about your origin stories. So, you know, where are you from and how did you eventually find yourself behind a camera? So, Taylor, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. So I am a landscape photographer, but I'm also a PhD researcher. And that's an interesting part of my origin story and how I blend these two fields together in my work. So I am a PhD researcher in international studies, but I focus on Arctic indigenous communities and particularly as that relates to climate change. So I'm really interested in the way that globalization and climate issues are impacting indigenous communities in the Arctic specifically. So that kind of brings me into photography and I use a lot of my visual art to tell stories about these communities and also the Arctic region in general. Um, also any other areas that I'm photographing, I'm really focused on telling stories about environmental issues that are affecting those specific areas. So mm -hmm. if you were to go on my website, you're going to see galleries that uh, provide science and fact-based information alongside visual images to help create that story. Nice, nice. And so why photography? Like what, what got you inspired to do photography versus, you know, just writing or something like that? Yeah, I when I was a kid, I honestly, National Geographic was pretty much the only thing I watched. And so yeah. that was my role model. <laughs> I was like, nice. well, what do you want to be when you're a kid? And when you grow up, I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. And now that that dream has just evolved in different ways. And I'm doing exactly what I would like to do, which is taking pictures to help tell these stories about the world around me. I grew up in mm -hmm. South Louisiana, so you were just like completely inundated in nature all the time. I mean, it was a completely outdoor life. And so photography was a really easy way for me to visually depict the world around me and kind of creatively explore it on my own terms. Nice. That's excellent. So Ashley, tell us about your origin story. How did you get involved in film and, and where are you calling in from? All right. Well, I'm in sunny California, but I'm actually from born in Louisiana and raised in Texas. Taylor and I are both Southern girls. Wow. Yeah. What a coincidence. <laughs> and I uh, love it. Proud. And um, I am both redheads. I should note. <laughs> <laughs> we have nothing in common whatsoever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets better too. Um, but anyways, yeah, I wanted to be a photographer since I could speak, since I could walk, since I could talk. I got a Barbie little Polaroid camera and I have like 15 Polaroid albums full, to, <laughs> full of pictures <laughs> of the most random stuff you will ever see. My family hated me because that's where all of our money went. <laughs> it's a <little laughs> more expensive these days. But um, yeah, and I went to school for photography. I was passionate about photography all the way through high school. And then I went to Pratt Institute in New York, which was my oh, nice. dream, New York City. I had a yeah. poster above my, you know, my bed, just staring at it every day in high school. Like, that's where I want to be. And I went to school for photography, which had its pros and cons, of course. And then I wanted to be a war photographer. I mean, since I was a little girl. Oh, wow. So that was my goal. And that was my end all be all. But life has its twists and turns. And I ended up 
navigating towards film because after you do photography for so many years, you kind of realize that it needs to come to life. I don't know. For me, at least it did. Maybe some people can find that in photography forever and endlessly, but I wanted it to move and I wanted Mm -hmm. it to speak and I needed to hear people's voices. And so that's how I navigated towards film. I traveled the world with my husband. I was very lucky to do so. And I was a freelance um, photojournalist and then I turned filmmaker in the past like three years. It was really spreading off when COVID hit and then the big boom. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's had a big impact, I imagine. Yes. Without a doubt. Yeah. I was living abroad full time and now I'm back in the States, which is an adventure. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've looked at, you have a YouTube channel, it has some of your films on there, um, as well as your website. And I noticed that a lot of the films that you've made recently are focused around issues involving indigenous cultures. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, how did you get interested in those t- types of topics specifically? Oh, the more I traveled, I studied abroad twice and um. Oh, it's such a long, you know, heartfelt, you know, you could just talk about it forever. But indigenous stories simply were the ones being affected most by Western society. And they didn't, from where I stood and what I saw, they didn't have a voice. I I don't know. I was talking to people all across the world who their stories were not being told. And those people were mostly in remote areas and they were being taken advantage of from monoculture farming to, you know, mineral mining. And they had nothing to say about it because they needed money. They needed to put food on their tables, but they were the people who lived off the land still, you know, they're the ones who are striving to still eat the berries, still hunt their food and not be completely immersed in this social media technology world. So I was drawn to that and I was really drawn to what they were fighting for. And I felt very passionate about helping them fight for it and helping share their message, their messages and the way they live and more like National Geographic, like History Channel, like a lot of people do, but just from the voices of the people themselves specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Taylor, you have a similar draw to Indigenous cultures up in Greenland. Um, Did that come from your research or did you have an interest in Greenland prior to when you started your PhD studies? It's actually kind of a blend. Um, For me, I live in two worlds between academia and, of course, photography. So I find that these two things, one side is extremely logical and fact-based, science-based, and the other side is very creative. So it's interesting to try and merge these two worlds together. I started doing academic research on the Arctic back in twenty, early 2018. I was really interested in the geopolitical issues. And that's really kind of where I started is geopolitics of the region. So we're talking really big, uh, Mm -hmm. like international issues. And so I decided I wanted to go to Greenland because it was something I was seeing pop up a lot as like a very strategic, uh, particular point of interest in the region. I wanted to go there. I'm also a photographer and I wanted to do landscape photography there. So my first trip to Greenland was the summer of 2018. And when I got there, I mean, the landscape is incredible. If you ever mm-hmm. have the chance to go to Greenland, you should just do it. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Greenland is spectacular. There's no other place like it that could even come close. I mean, the ice is enormous and everywhere. And the tundra is beautiful. And the culture is rich and vibrant. And I fell completely in love 
And I realized that for me, on two fronts, the story needed to be told differently. Um, first, my research, I really pivoted my research away from geopolitical issues and I niched down right into exactly what I was interested in, which was the rural communities in Greenland. You don't have to be in Greenland very long to realize that there are abandoned rural settlements everywhere, empty houses, and you just see the changes that are taking place. It's all around you. Um, and it's unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's in your face. And, you know, if you're, I was, I went back in 2019 actually, and I was camping. So I, I love camping in Greenland. And I had the Arctic tundra, the permafrost melt right out from under my tent. You know, oh I mean, gosh. you just, you're physically feeling it. You're on the front line. Like you're there. The front yeah. line is like this the front lines of climate change is this very ambiguous place that people talk about, you know, it's, somewhere up in the ether, right? The front line of climate change, it's somewhere, but it's not here. But when you're in Greenland, it's right under your feet. It's right in yeah. front of you. So photographically and in terms of research, I just really took a hard stop, reevaluated what I was doing. I pivoted my photography more towards conservation and storytelling. And I really made a big shift away from taking pretty pictures and towards projects that had impact whether that was in Greenland or even close at home, I found projects that I really uh, developed around the idea of impact and telling cohesive stories. Mm -hmm. So that actually is what drew me to Ashley because she's an incredible storyteller. And, you know, I just knew that we were going to be able to collaborate on something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely talk more about your project in, in a moment. Um, can you can you talk to us for, for people who are, you know, at that cusp of, you know, they understand photography, they're happy with the images they're creating, and they want to kind of extend it, have a little more purpose to their images and not just be creating pretty pictures and, you know, for printing or first sharing on social media or whatever, but to have images or, or a story that goes with them. How, I guess I have a couple of questions, like what are some elements of a good story and mm. how how do you how do you find those stories when you're just starting out trying to find you know you both have had life experiences that had impact on you that drove you to and inspired you to pursue these storylines but if you're looking for one do you have any suggestions or advice on how someone can get started totally yeah, I Ashley's I know Ashley wants to chime in. Yeah. <laughs> I know we both do. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just have to say patience. Yeah, <laughs> patience. <laughs> because the more you force it, the less likely it'll come. Uh, you know, it's so easy to wrap up our little bios and say, you know, this beautiful storyline of our work so quickly and fast, but it was for me it's extremely difficult, very painful. And finding the meaning behind my work was not easy in any way. And I'm yeah. just, it, you know, it will happen naturally. And that doesn't say you shouldn't be working as hard as you can constantly and always getting out there and doing what makes you feel good. Like seriously, just what makes your heart tingle, you know, and you're mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, I need to follow that intuition. I need to see where that's leading me, whether it's between two trees across a valley or whether it's into someone's you know, hut in the middle of nowhere and they're saying, come in for some tea, and, you know, and it may feel really weird and out of the box, but you should do it because that's what makes life wonderful. And that's what makes your photography and your videography develop and change over time. So that's my storyline on it. But Taylor probably has a totally different one. 
Yeah, yeah but it, actually, I, I mean, for for me, because I am a landscape photographer, I have found that finding a story or impact in your images seems, at least from my perspective, easier with wildlife or photojournalism because you have like a really compelling subject already, you mm-hmm. know, something that people can connect with. It's easy to connect with an animal. It's easy to connect with other humans in the photo and, and it helps with storytelling. With landscape photography, it's pretty challenging. You have to be very intentional about it. One of the things that I have found to be helpful is to take a big concept, um, like an entire ecosystem that I want to talk about. And you really just break it down into its component parts because each tiny little thing is a component that helps tell the story. And you use these tiny elements to build the narrative. So for me, it might just be photographing for hours this tiny fern that maybe in the terms of grand landscape is not that exciting, but it's a very important part of the whole story. And when you take these individual components and you actually put them together in a cohesive project, it flows and it makes sense. And that's really the goal in terms of like, how do you have impact with landscape photography is you have to have a way to pull a narrative together. Little pieces helps. Yeah. That's why so many scientists are drawn to landscape photography. I feel like, right? It's, they just kind of go together in so many beautiful ways when you have an artistic heart, but you have a science brain. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of biologists and naturalists are, are drawn to photography for sure. Mm -hmm. So what does the research and development phase look like before production of a project like the one that we're going to talk about? It's extensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, Do we have 10 hours to talk about yeah. <laughs> Well, for me. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Ashley. Oh, I just wanted to share how we met. Can I share how we met real quick? Yes, that would be great. It was not. We, we never lived next to each other. We still have never lived next to each other. So. So my husband and Taylor's ex-boyfriend were bunkmates in the Navy. And oh my gosh. Yeah, the boys in boot camp bunkmates. And in boot camp, you would show pictures of your girlfriends to the guys and all that good, you know, whatever stuff. And um, Taylor and I were introduced through them. So Taylor started following me. And that that's how we met each other. And that's definitely... We were drawn to each other for so many reasons. And Taylor one day just DM'd me and was like, I have a story idea and I think you'll be able to help me tell it and we should do this. It was just, and I was like, excuse my profanity, but hell yeah, let's do it. (laughs) It was was very organic. It was. Yeah. yeah. We just felt immediately that we needed to work together. So we made it happen. And since then we have been doing just that. Right, Taylor? Yes. Uh, So for me, it it started even before that because I knew that there was a story to tell that I wanted to tell immediately, like 2018, the second I was in Greenland, like that was it for me. And I knew that the story needed more than my photos because it it was a, it wasn't my story to tell, right? Mm -hmm. It's the story of of an entire culture. And I didn't feel like my photos were the right way to do that. So Research-wise, um, I mean, with my PhD, I've really focused. The, the the story that we're telling with the film and the story I'm doing with my own research, they're completely intertwined. And mm-hmm. so I've spent years of my life researching 
the specific issues that we anticipate filming when we're actually in Greenland. Um, and it has just kind of spiraled out from there. It's very important for us that our project is based in science and facts, even though it is not our story to tell and that we'll be using other people, you know, they will be telling their own story through our project. But in terms of like having a real solid foundation, like that's me, I've been spending years of my life building up for this moment. Send me in, coach. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So the past couple of years since Taylor proposed this idea to me, which was almost two years to the day now, we have been trying to figure out how her science and my storytelling would merge together and putting together all connecting all the dots to make it happen the most beautiful and most successful way we could possibly do so. Okay, so before we jump into all of the the details of the project, which I definitely want to get to, let's introduce the project to the listeners first. So all I know right now, it's a a film project in Greenland. So what is the story that you're hoping to tell with this documentary, Taylor? Right. So particularly with my research in the academic field and also in pop culture, when people talk a lot about indigenous people in the Arctic, it's usually framed in this narrative that I think most of us are familiar with by now, which is that, you know, the ice is melting, people can't hunt anymore, you know, victims of climate change. There's this victim narrative. And Ashley and I really think it's important that we totally change that conversation. We're trying to actually reshape the way that we discuss these indigenous communities in the Arctic to reflect their own story because they're not going to think of themselves as victims of climate change, right? They're active participants in the world. They are resilient. They're adaptive. It is a rich culture with 4,500 years of practice to hone their skills to survive in one of the most hostile environments on earth. And Our film project is designed to help tell their story, and we really want to give them a way to tell us about the future that they envision for themselves, not what we as Westerners on the outside see looking in. We're not trying to paint them in a particular narrative. We want them to tell us what future they want. What do they see for themselves? Ashley, do you want to add anything? Yeah, for those who aren't familiar with my work, this is what I do. This is what my documentaries are based around is talking with indigenous cultures and asking them what their opinions are on the changes that are happening around them and broadcasting their opinions for others to hear and see and hopefully in a beautiful way that gets across compelling emotion and honesty. And these are not This isn't a normal documentary that we're making that Taylor and I are producing together. It is a long process that involves getting to know people on a very, very deep level, living with them for quite a long time. We're not just coming in to a space for a week, getting those interviews in, paying people off, you know, disrupting someone's lifestyle and then walking away. We have impacts that we are very concerned and very driven to make sure that we give back to the community as well as the storyline itself is going to be told in a very organic and honest sense. So we will, I might not even pick up my camera for the first week. I'll I'll just get to know people. I'll go fishing with them, hunting with them, live their day-to-day life, learn how they eat, how they do, how they live, you know, and become one with the environment. And then you start to pull back those layers, you know, and it's a beautiful process. and, And that's what we plan to go do. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Just so yeah. people logistically understand what we're trying to do. I mean, this has been years in the making. This is actually a pretty challenging project for both of us getting to the area that we're going to. I mean, this is the northernmost continually inhabited place on earth. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> logistically, it's hard. Um, it took us months to find a translator who spoke both the native tongue and English. I mean, so many emails sent, so many phone calls made, uh, so many Zoom meetings and Facebook meetings just to try and make this happen. And it's finally all kind of come together now where we have uh, community consent. We have been invited to stay with a family in the settlement and live with them for five to six weeks. Um, oh, we have logistical support from a translator. I mean, there's so much that goes into us. We're talking like four plane flights plus a helicopter and some boat rides. I mean, it's yeah. it's logistically how ma- difficult. <laughs> how many hours will it take, do you think, to get there from the East Coast? Well, that depends on how many flights are canceled in Greenland, (laughs) (laughs) which is normal. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And what time of year are you hoping to to be there? We'll be there hopefully this summer, knock on wood, and also in wintertime of 2023. Okay. So you'll get both weather conditions. Exactly. Wow. So where to even begin? So the, the story that you want to tell... Are you are you thinking, are you anticipating that people will will say that they have a resilient future in mind or that they are, you know, um, regretting the climate change and the change that they have in their hunting practices and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think first off, it's, it's important that Ashley and I are not we don't have a narrative in mind that we're hoping to get out of it. Right. Like we're not projecting our own story into this. Like we're open to listening. However, from a lot of the research that I've done, I, I am pretty aware of some of the issues that are impacting their way of life and not all of them are climate change. And we really anticipate speaking about more nuanced issues that are affecting their way of life. So Mm. climate change, it's right. Yeah. I can give some examples. So yeah. Climate change, of course, is very, it's the easiest impact to understand, which is that, well, if the ice is melting, it makes it harder for them to hunt in wintertime because they have to be able to go out on the ice to hunt uh, some of the their traditional foods, which is whale, seal, um, and like these are their traditional sources of sustenance. It's important for people to understand that these are subsistence hunting communities, so they eat what they catch. Right. So Mm -hmm. our Western values about what it is that they're hunting really need to go out the window and we need to understand the environment that they are living in. Right. So they're they're using the sea ice to hunt their prey. And with melting ice or unstable ice conditions, they can't go out and do that. And it severely limits their ability to bring in the food they need for the year. But there's also other factors at play with a warming climate. Animal behavior changes. Migration patterns change. How many animals are available for what season changes. This is all very dynamic. And part of what has made these communities so successful and able to survive here for this long is Mm -hmm. that they're naturally adaptive 
adaptation is built into their culture. They're extremely Mm. flexible and they will hunt what is available when it is available based on weather conditions, migration patterns. It's very organic the way that they survive. However, in the modern era, you have a lot of externally imposed restrictions that have come into force, such as you can only hurt Uh, hunt certain animals during certain times of the year. So there's date limitations that put up guardrails on your hunting activities, or you can only hunt and catch a certain number within a certain time period, or you can only use certain types of technology to hunt. There's all these external guardrails that are put on uh, that restrict certain behaviors, which sound very superficially to be great, right? Like we need to regulate protection of endangered species. This is good. Like we can find a balance. However, that prevents people from being as adaptive as they need to be when you are in a subsistence hunting community. Mm -hmm. And so we do expect to find um, quite a few discussions about the quoting and regulation system that is impacting their way of life. There's other issues like the introduction of wage economy, which creates really complex dynamics between subsistence and the need to earn an income. So we're we're expecting that our whole narrative is going to have nuance, which is real life, right? right? It's it's not our goal to go out there and just tell this monolithic story about how you know climate change bad, people hunting can't do it anymore. Like that's just very simplistic, and that's yeah. not we feel the real story on the ground there. Yeah, yeah, it's much more dimensional than that. It sounds like, and and so the these must be like government sanctions that they're putting in place to restrict hunting, and so the abandoned um, villages that you observed when you first went there is that a result? People are unable to adapt, and so they're moving on to someplace else. And where are they going? It's a couple, yeah, it's a couple different factors. I've actually done really extensive migration modeling of. Um, from census data in Greenland. Thankfully, they report population statistics a couple of times a year, which is amazing if you're a data researcher. Mm-hmm. And so it allows me to do really cool things with migration models and see exactly where people are moving to. Um, there's a huge urbanization trend in Greenland. That's not unusual. Um, you know, we see urbanization trends in pretty much every developing country. So we can't chalk that up to climate change, right? It's just a general trend that's happening in a globalized world. However, there are a couple of factors that are driving people out. I think the need to participate in the wage economy is part of it. Mm. As technology advances, if you hunt with a rifle or you need a boat to go out and catch steel, well, that stuff isn't free. You're going to have to have cash to get it. And if you're going to get cash, you can't live in these rural settlements anymore, right? There's not a cash job there. You're going to have to move to a more urban area to get cash. And then if you participate in the wage economy, then you're not considered a full-time hunter and you're denied hunting permits. So there's this really spiral effect. It's super complex. Um, And hopefully we can at least scratch the surface on that. Wow. It's so much more complex than I realized. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what you guys uncover while you're there. I think that's part Um, of the reason, right, that we're so fascinated with it is because I think a lot of the dominant narratives that people are familiar with are very simplistic. And I understand that in our uh, fast food culture, right, it's just easily digestible, consumable information. And everyone likes 
the narrative to be neat and tidy, but that's also not reality. And if you only focus on these very simplistic ways of looking at things, we can't actually understand what's going on, which means you can't actually change it. Like you're not really understanding the issue. Right. Yeah. So are there any communities in Northern Greenland that are so remote and so isolated that they, they don't have, um, sort of modern contact and, um, and what do you know? And do they have any idea what's happening <laughs> in terms yeah. of climate change or any of these, you know, restrictions that are, they do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's important for people to keep in mind that Greenland is a very modern culture, right? So um, Ashley has a lot more experience with more remote tribes in Borneo, for example, but Greenland is very modern. I mean, you're going to have cell coverage in most of the villages. They're going to have electricity. Um, you know, they live in pretty traditional European style houses. So it, it's a very modern place. I would liken the sensation of being in Greenland to the feeling that you get in Cuba where you have something that's very old next to something very new and they're all mixed together because Mm -hmm. in Greenland you're going to have a smartphone and maybe a snowmobile but you also have sled dogs and so there's this very strange mix of things where you have traditional hunting cultures but probably a tv and so it's um I think it's important that people understand that this is not a primitive culture by any means. Like this is very sophisticated and modern culture, but they are preserving these traditional practices because it's an important part of who they are. And we're not blind to the fact that so many others have come before us and documented this in Northern Greenland, as well as many, many scientists are going regularly and studying this culture. And we don't intend to bombard them or, um, you know, we don't intend to ignore that. And we do, we want to bring it and discuss it in the documentary about how they feel about it and always being kind of right. under the scope. Yeah, it's definitely one of the reasons that like going into the early research and pre-production part of this is that community consent was so important to us. Lots of anthropologists go into these communities, lots of climate researchers and glaciologists go into these communities. They'll probably not ask for permission. They're going to just buy a flight, pop in, get their research and leave typically is what's happening. And it's important to us that we weren't a part of that trend where we're extracting from this culture. Like we're not trying to extract from this culture. We want to be a part of this culture. That's like a really self-conscious part of our, um, our impact campaign that we have that goes along with this project. Yeah. It's not, it's not that their storylines are bad or what they're doing is bad. We just have a different one and we just have Mm -hmm. a different approach we want to take so we can get a different side of the story. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, you want to give those people a microphone, basically. You want to tell their story and have them, like, as you said earlier, have them tell their own story and their viewpoints aren't being shared right Spot now. Spot on. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there's just, it's an interesting time to go there. We think it's particularly timely because right now there are very few hunters, subsistence hunters left, um, somewhere about 80 or so just in the northern region that are full-time subsistence hunters, fewer than 20 in the settlement that we're going to, which is a huge decline from the past. And we are aware that the people that we are going to be speaking with, they're probably the last generation that have 
a memory of the past before a lot of these regulations, restrictions, climate change, like a lot of the more modern issues, they have a memory before that. And they're operating still today. And really, once that generation is gone, there won't be that bridge between the past and the present that exists anymore. So that makes it extremely timely for us to actually go do this because we want to talk to the people who really do remember a time before this because that helps us tell the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That actually is a, a great lead into my question, which was, you know, people think about climate change and we got to save the polar bears and, and that's what they think. And there's like a blind eye that's put towards saving traditional cultures and practices yes. and and what is being handed down through their oral histories and that sort of thing. And I know that one part of your project is to have some of that oral history recorded. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. This is like a huge, I'm such a nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's I'm definitely an academic inside of a creative's body because when I, when we got this idea, I was just on fire about it. Um, so the local community that we're going to, they speak a different dialect than the rest of Greenland. And this is a dialect that has actually not had a lot of linguistics research done. Um, it is predominantly oral, although it can be written sometimes. And a lot of this dialect is being absorbed into the greater Greenlandic uh, community. So there's like a dominant language. So there's only about 700 speakers left right now. And so we are going in and Ashley and I were thinking, all right, well, how do we give back to the communities? Because we don't want to go in and just extract this and leave. Like we want to make sure that we have real impact that is lasting for the people who are engaging with us. And we realized that we're going to be sitting on a treasure trove of recordings and cultural stories. And that it was so important to us that that actually belonged to the people who gave it to us. So we are working with my university, Old Dominion University has already stepped up and offered to host an archive. Um, And we're also looking for an Inuit partner as well, who can also host this indigenous knowledge themselves. And we will be making these recordings freely available to both researchers and the local community. So anybody who wants to learn more about this language, they can go in watch these cultural stories and hear, you know, the stories from their elders in the community or what their life used to be like. And we're going to hopefully have translations alongside it so people can um, translate back and forth between the languages. And we're hoping that this has real impact both in the academic community, but also for the community that we're working with, where it's a cultural touchstone that they can reach back to any time. We want them to be proud of where they came from and help share their, their wealth and knowledge, you know? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I just think that's such a great thing that you're contributing as part of this whole project. I mean, the project itself is amazing. Both the, the stories that you're going to tell through the film and the photos that you'll create with your photography, Taylor, but this is just like a whole other level, whole other extra icing on the cake for the whole project, Mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic. I'm pretty excited about it. I think that it needs to be recognized that indigenous knowledge belongs to indigenous people and somehow finding a way to make that available back to them is better. I mean, we don't want to leave with this footage. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to that community. So Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that it it goes back to them. Yeah. Yeah. 
simply just helping them record it and document it for all to see. We are very thankful that someone in America wants to put these interviews on their webs on their website and online, but we are trying to hope hopefully get in contact with a museum or someone in Greenland. We've been trying very hard. So I'm saying that if anyone knows anyone, <laughs> <That's right>. yeah, <laughs> reach out, please. Yes. Reach out because we want to make sure Greenlanders own this if possible. Yeah. So what do you think we can learn from these communities, these cultures in terms of our own adaptation? I think it's important to uh, first off understand that cultural diversity is beautiful and important and it deserves to be protected. Like yeah. Brenda, you already talked about conservation and that we often overlook conservation of cultures or other ethnic groups. And I think that's true. It's easy to place conservation in terms of wildlife generally is what we think about when we talk about conservation in the arts. But, um, you know, cultural conservation is real, too. It's important that we recognize that this difference exists and by hopefully if we're going to do an amazing job portraying it and uh, people will understand that it has value just in its very existence. Just the fact that it exists in this world is reason enough to make sure that it's protected. Like it's valuable in itself. Right. Yeah. Every single thing that we do in society, especially living in a country like America or in Europe or Australia, every single thing that we do is connected to others, whether we want to believe it or not. You know, every phone, every time we pick up our phone, every time we buy a new phone, every time we use a piece of plastic, it goes back to indigenous culture, the people who are still trying to survive by living off the lands and and the animals who are still trying to survive. And, you know, it's an ecosystem still out there. And although it may not affect us directly because we, you know, graze our cattle in farms and we cut them for the grocery store and we have different, we have even evolved into a different way of life. That doesn't mean that it's not affecting others really far away. And that's what I like to kind of bring to the forefront. And in my documenting, it's very important for others to see how your actions are affecting others. Yeah. So are you guys going to have um, like a call to action to people in the film? You know, what, what change are you hoping that people will make after, after seeing the film? I don't know if we have an answer for that yet. Cause that's going to come while filming. We may have 20 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I may be like going on a total (laughs) rant on my Instagram story. (laughs) It's funny because people do, people ask them like, what is the film about? And Ashley and I have had this discussion at nauseum where it's like, we have kind of ideas, like what we think we'll discuss in it, but like, we're, we're going to let the narrative shape itself. Yeah. It's weird to say though, right? And it, may, right, it, right. It's not, it doesn't mean we're not prepared. It doesn't mean, it's just that it means we're not putting our biased opinion on this documentary. Like Taylor mentioned before, we're not going in with an idea, with an answer that we want. And we're not just striving to get that answer. It, we don't know what the answer is going to be. And that's the beauty of it. That's, that's, the I think story. that's what makes it unique and important, right? Yeah. Like, that's the whole point is that it's not our, it's not our solution. Not our story. Our yeah, it's not our story to tell. So we don't know what the story is yet. We have to find out. Right. Yeah. And how will you know when to wrap it up? You know? oh, I never know when to wrap it up. Oh, my gosh. Taylor and I, we've never been seriously in the field together yet. And she's going to learn this about me. <laughs> she may have to leave me in Greenlands because, yeah, I mean, I ended up getting 
<laughs> adopted into a Dayak tribe in Borneo. And my husband was like, Ashley, when are you coming home? <laughs> like, <laughs> You're like, I can't leave. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm in this. Like, can you move to Borneo? I spent a year trying to convince him to move there. Um, wow. It's, it's what comes from loving what you do. But uh, we don't yeah. have an... We, we we will naturally wrap it up when it's time to fly home because it's very hard to change plane tickets and you have to move with the weather in Greenland. Right. So we'll yeah. stay as long as we have scheduled. But um, if we need to go back, we will. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, I as you were saying earlier, you know, you're you're going to live with this family for several weeks, you know, over a month. And you might not even take your camera out for that first week. So you're really immersing yourself and and being their guest. Right. You have to gain trust. Exactly. So, you know, that takes a long time and gauging when the right moment is to bring out the camera or, um, you know, not to to make a step backwards in that trust that you're still being there in an accepted sort of way without stepping on toes and everything like that, making people uncomfortable, even if that's completely unintentional, mm-hmm. just not knowing how they'll react to different things. And so I feel like that has to be a very careful um, process, you know, something that you're very, very sensitively taking steps towards starting to have these interviews and that sort of thing. And you don't want that to, to backtrack at all. Um, and so having the flexibility of time helps that trust strengthen over time. Yes. And we are not National Geographic, so we don't have a lot of trust already with our names, you know. We're going to go in as people and we're going to come out as people and hopefully friends. Right. Yeah. So it does take longer. When we are individuals, I am an independent, you know, production company. I'm just me. And so it does take longer to build that trust and to organically form those relationships without saying I'm not geo photographer, which is a beautiful thing. That name is awesome, but it does immediately put you in a box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it also just comes down to like taking our time and consent is very important to both me and Ashley. So mm-hmm. we want mm-hmm. people to feel comfortable with us. Yeah. It's very sure. important. Otherwise you don't get the real story. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm curious, you know, being that you're both female and have traveled the world uh, to these remote places, have there been any sort of challenges that you've faced because you're a woman in these remote villages, either challenges because, you know, it may, it may be more of a patriarch type of culture or the opposite? Are you more welcomed because you're less threatening? First question I always get is, are you married? And where's your husband? Because <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I say yes. And then sometimes the answer is he's down the street when really he's hundreds of thousands of miles away. Right. <laughs> Just a place safe for my safety. It is. It definitely has its difficult moments, but it also has its major advantages. Because as a woman, you get invited in, like you said, you do. You get invited into some miraculous opportunities that only women can see because in those patriarchal patriarchal societies where men dominate women can only do certain things in certain rooms in certain places and as a woman I'm allowed to enter into those places and I'm allowed to hold the babies and do such emotional human to human contact that a, a man would probably have to work a lot harder to get to that space just immediately you know yeah it, it it's definitely difficult though sometimes yeah I've been in some really bad situations, really scary ones. Um, 
I won't call out the countries that I won't talk badly about because it's, you know, one person in a country, but it, there's, there's heartaches, definitely. Yeah. How, how about you, Taylor? Have you had any experiences with that? I haven't really had too many difficult ex- I have far more problems with <laughs> with men here in the US. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but I I think in Greenland particularly, I've never had any issues, but I also haven't tried to do precisely what we're going to do, which is to film hunting, which is mm. traditionally a male sphere in Greenland. So I do think that trust is going to be really essential for us to get invited into that space. Mm-hmm. But also, the women's role is very important in hunting communities in Greenland. Like they really play a very essential role in cleaning the catch and preparing the food. And so, hopefully, we will be able to see both ends of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've learned if if you get in with the woman of the household, you are in with the man. If the woman trusts you, I mean, as long as they hold some power, which my understanding, the Greenlanders, they do. You're in, you know, what the woman says goes. That is <laughs> that is how it works. <laughs> they hold the power. Right. But if men want to believe it or not, it always seems to be true. Right. Yeah. Well, they know how to cook the food. So if they want to eat. <laughs> Very important. Right. So what are uh, some other challenges you anticipate maybe running into while you're traveling? Uh, you've already mentioned a little bit about weather canceling flights and that sort of thing. Are there any other challenges that you're anticipating and trying to plan for ahead of time? I I mean, for me, the food, the food, (laughs) there's some, there's some Greenlandic food that I absolutely love. Um, and there's, there's some of it that I struggle with a little bit. So I'm, I think I'm going to, I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone quite a bit. That's Taylor speaking, everyone. Right? <laughs> yeah. Ashley will eat anything. I I will eat anything. It's just whether or not I'm happy about it. Right. <laughs> so are you going to like pack snacks and that sort of like, thing? Like there's a or? suitcase of ramen coming. No, I'm just kidding. Right, right. <laughs> no, I'm going to be a part of the community to the extent yeah. that I'm allowed to be. And, um, you know, tough cookie. I, I, can, I can figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a fairly sensitive digestive system myself, but um, I, I would imagine that having such a switch in the type of food that you're eating could, you know, whether you like the taste of it or not, could actually wreak havoc on your system. Yeah. The food in yeah. Greenland is really interesting. I've had some very interesting food while I'm there. I mean, you, you eat a lot of different types of meat. Um you know, Greenlandic food is very meat focused, but it's very different than what we have here in the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. unless you're in a town, the likelihood of you getting chicken or beef or pork is pretty much zero. Yeah. <laughs> so sense. you're going to be looking for other sources of protein. Yeah. Taylor, have you ever tried the dish, the Greenlandic dish, suicide, the soup that has seal meat in it? I'm really excited for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I have. I've tried seal in a number of ways, but um, what was it good? Well, it's it's different. <laughs> out of out of all of the protein in Greenland that I've tried, is seal has been my least favorite, but oh. it is also the most dominant uh, non fish protein. So it's just the way that it is. Yeah. I was just curious. Seal, seal is, uh, it's so important to Greenlandic culture. It is yeah. with most meals, seal is just absolutely essential. Right, right. 
So I understand you will have launched a Kickstarter campaign by the time this episode comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell the listeners about the Kickstarter campaign, how they can find out more about it and, and about the project if they would like to support you? Yeah. Our Kickstarter is our baby. And she is live right now when you're listening to this. So be sure to go check it out. Kickstarter. Uh, You'll see Taylor's and my project. Um, It is specifically funding this documentary. It's funding the transportation as well as the translator, which, as we mentioned previously, this dialect is very unique. It's very... um, small (laughs) in the people and the amount of people who can speak it. So the translator is very vital to figuring out this entire thing. And um, your money will go directly towards supporting everything that we are doing. Kickstarter itself is a campaign platform different than GoFundMe and different than Patreon for a couple of different ways. There are rewards. If you donate, you'll see on the right-hand side of the screen that there's different rewards and we have different things that we're giving away with each level and how much you want to donate. And also you'll see on the page that it is um, laid out to describe every single thing that we entail about this documentary. Facts, you'll learn about Taylor and I, even more about the history and what we've done. And um, a lot about Taylor's research. So you'll kind of feel like you're involved. This is really when you're donating to this project, it's, it's becoming a part of you. You are becoming a part of the project. You'll right. follow along and we're going to send you updates. It's, it's really going to be an adventure and we want y'all along for the ride. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. So um, if you do donate to this project, we are inviting you kind of into the circle and people who donate, you get certain rewards, like Ashley mentioned, based on the level that you donate at. But it lets you into the behind the scenes of how we make this film, like all the backstory of while we're there, you get access to lots of uh, like early rewards, like an early review of the film and things like that. So there are so many ways that you can be involved in it. And if everything we've talked about kind of makes you think, wow, that's cool. Or I wish I could be involved in something like this. It's like, well, you can, like we're inviting Mm -hmm. you in. Uh, I think it's also important that people understand how Kickstarter works. So I didn't even know this when we first got started. We knew we needed to do crowdfunding and realized that Kickstarter would be a good way to do it. But people don't realize how high risk Kickstarter is. So Kickstarter, it's a high risk gamble for Ashley and I, because if we don't meet our funding goal, we get zero dollars and everything that is donated goes directly back to the people who donated it. So it's essential that we meet our Kickstarter goal, like Ashley said, to pay a fair wage to our support team on the ground very important. Like we have already mentioned that we are contributing to this community and that means that we're paying them a fair wage, just like you would want to have paid to you. So your donations are going to go directly to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And, and also for people who are interested in doing a project similar to this, you know, a documentary or a, a project, a photo project that tells a story, a conservation story, having that behind the scenes look at what is involved in a project at this level, I think would be really educational as well. So yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast after the Kickstarter maybe ended, it ends on March 31st, then you can go to Taylor's or my website and find out more on how to get behind the scenes just by donating. You can send us a message. We will still include you in things 
things. If you're like, oh man, I wish I got in on this, you still can. Just shoot us an email, go to our websites. Nice. And I'll put all the links in the show notes to your Kickstarter and your websites and all your social media handles and all that kind of stuff too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, are you guys up for doing a lightning round? Sure. Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll call I'll call on each of you. All right. So what's one piece of gear you can't live without that's not your photography or videography gear? Ashley. My water bottle. Yes. <laughs> Taylor. A box of Cheez Its. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I'm at least I'm honest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this thing is my baby. <laughs> so we, we kind of touched on this before, but I want a little more specific. So you've both spent a lot of time in remote areas with cultures very different than your own. So what's been the most unusual food or drink that you've ever tasted? I didn't say favorite, unusual. Uh, yeah, um, in Greenland, I've had matok, which is, um, it's, raw skin or blubber from a whale wow and yeah it's it's actually not bad like it really isn't it's yeah it's super high i mean kind of it's kind of buttery i mean it's like the Mm. the fat that would be on a steak even yeah so it's similar but it's a very important cultural food they use it for like a lot of um, any important events in a community and Anyway, yeah, it's um, super high in energy. So it's a traditional food used for like long dog sledding trips or things like that because it's lightweight, it's small, packed with energy. Yeah, sounds like it. How about you, Ashley? Oh, man. In one meal, um, in one meal, I had ants, these really, really, really fat giant grub worms that were full of blood. It was really <laughs> wacky. And cut open a snake and was oh. picking it with my hands and fingers. Yep. <laughs> that was one. Wow. Meal. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. I won't forget it. I hope y'all don't either. Just me bringing it back <laughs> up. <It's> like, <laughs> Where was that at, Ashley? <laughs> oh, that was in Borneo. Wow. <laughs> that was my second home. I'll go back. I'll eat it again. But everyone laughing at me the entire time was probably more painful than eating it itself. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow oh gosh you guys are brave um so taylor what do you do in your downtime what downtime (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah, i don't have a lot of downtime between school and photography um usually i if i have even a brief moment i'm trying to find something productive to do whether it's edit a couple of photos um but lately i've been reminded by my boyfriend that i need to take a little bit more me time so we're trying to focus more on like cooking <laughs> yeah yeah good <laughs> i know her boyfriend and i support that message actually <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> how about you uh, I am an ocean girl. I'm in the water. I'll, I'm a free diver, scuba oh, diver, nice. surfer. Yeah. So if I have any downtime, <laughs> I am in the water without yeah. a doubt. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, Taylor, what's your favorite thing about what you do? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I get it. <sighs> It's so it's kind of selfish, but uh, I get excited. <laughs> it's for in part, it's for me too, right? Like course, I just yeah. love it so much, and it's not even this project, for example. I have never been this excited about something, and like it's certain 
about its impact from like day one. Like I know that this is going to be probably one of the best things that I've ever creatively accomplished. And I'm so excited to be doing it. But selfishly, my favorite thing is that I'm super stoked every single day. And like, isn't that beautiful that I get to wake up and be pumped about what I'm doing? Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley, how about you? I have a similar response. I don't know if it's like, the question was, what's our favorite thing about what we do, right? Yeah. It's what's your favorite thing about what you do. And it's exactly what Taylor said. I'm just so happy I get to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Everything that we just described, it's like, am I seriously doing my dream job? I'm traveling, you know, everything about it. It's all my favorite, every single thing. You know, even when I'm like calling Taylor going, dude, we got to take five. I'm like, we're freaking (laughs) out. We're we're overloaded. (laughs) Step back for a sec. Um, Well, Ashley's on California time. So I have a really bad habit of uh, texting her at like 6am her time. Like, Hey, have you? (laughs) (laughs) And then Taylor's probably asleep when I'm messaging her. I'm like, look at everything I did today. And she was passed out. Like, I don't care anymore, Ashley. Just go. <laughs> but even when we have those moments, I'm just so happy that we're having those moments because yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It oh, is. That's awesome. I would definitely say too, like just from the nerd side, like I really appreciate that I get to share some of like the reality behind the places that I go with other people. Cause I also teach workshops and I it's so important to me that when I bring people out into any environment that I'm taking them, that I talk about the environmental issues going on that are specific to that place. And I make that like a personal mission of mine to bring in science and more fact-based information rather than, wow, what a pretty place that we went to. And it's the mm-hmm. same with the documentary. You know, it's Greenland is more than just absolutely stunning. It also has all of these really interesting things and, and being able to bring that to other people is amazing. I'm really excited to be working with a science brain. So (laughs) I'm I'm so stoked because I'm in no way a scientist. I'm full art, like always, all the way from here down to my toes. And (laughs) this is going to be a beautiful merge. I'm very excited for it. Yes. Yes. Me too. Me too. So final question, what does connecting with nature mean to you? Taylor? Ha, you have to go first. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, connecting with nature is probably, it's like the only time that my brain just slows down a little bit. And and that's true. Like I'm a hundred miles an hour, 24 seven. I rarely have time to myself. And it's kind of funny, but like when I'm working with my camera is when I'm most calm and most um, like just at peace with myself and the place that I'm photographing. So being in nature, like that is calming for me. It is Mm -hmm. that serene space where I get to just shut out other things and commune with whatever it is that I'm trying to document. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Ashley? To me, being in nature means if, if you tell me like, what does it mean? And I envision something. And the first thing that comes to my brain is spearfishing off the back of a boat, (laughs) off the back of a sailboat and living off the sea and, you know, filtering my water and or rainwater. 
and fully immersing myself and just never seeing the light of anyone else's faces other than my husband. He's about to come along, but he won't do this <laughs> idea. And I keep, you know, it's like <laughs> moving to Borneo. He also won't get on the sailboat with me. <laughs> I'll take I him. Ashley. <laughs> she is totally feral. Ashley, you are a feral <laughs> child. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you both so much for this incredible conversation. All of the work that you're doing is really inspiring. And I just can't wait to see in a year what is going to come out of this project. Um, and maybe we can have you back on the show and uh, you can talk about what it was like. And in retrospect, it, is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Um, guys, just check the show notes for uh, the Kickstarter campaign. It would be awesome. Yeah. You can just learn more about the project there and kind of find out what it's really all about and our Im impact campaign that goes along with it. So mm -hmm. uh, definitely check that out. And if you have any questions, Taylor and I would love to answer them. So also do not be shy. Like even if you think it's a weird question or we don't care, we love weird questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Excellent. Great, great. Well, again, I will put all those in the show notes and uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you, Brenda. It was fun. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Taylor and Ashley. And I highly encourage you to check out their Kickstarter campaign, which just launched last week and will continue until March 15th. You can find all of the links mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com forward slash 47. There are two exciting developments that I want to share since we had recorded our conversation, and that is one, the Arctic Arts Project is now a fiscal sponsor for their Kickstarter campaign, which means that 100% of your donation will be tax deductible. And I have personally backed their project because I believe in their ability to bring this project to fruition, and I believe it will have an important impact for the cultures of Greenland and beyond. And if I'm being honest, I'm also quite excited to get access to their behind the scenes work. I think that'll be really fun to see. Secondly, Taylor and Ashley are now also collaborating with the Greenland National Museum to establish the language archive that they mentioned so that all of the recordings in the native language that they are going to create will be preserved for and by Greenlanders forever. And again, thank you, Ashley and Taylor, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you, and I hope you feel inspired after today's episode. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give you a photography tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, just click the link at outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you will be able to record your short message. And until then, get outside my friends and find yourself a little nature. Take care. <laughs>